from beautiful downtown Milheim, in the smack dab center of the Keystone State, this is Lou Bryson with Seen Through a Glass, a podcast that's mostly about food and drink in central Pennsylvania. Welcome to episode 32, The Meat Lab at Penn State. One thing you learn when you move to central Pennsylvania, something you damn sure know if you grew up here, is that the Pennsylvania State University, universally known as Penn State, looms large in almost every aspect of life hereabouts. The road system, driven by Penn State. Businesses from miles around, dependent on Penn State. The real estate market throughout Center County hangs on every decision at the university. The town itself is named State College. And of course, when it's seen through a glass, the restaurant scene, and most definitely the bar scene, are all about Penn State. We think and talk about the university all the time. Today, we know of Penn State as a huge research university with a top engineering school, a noted and well-endowed business school, a strong pre-med program, a preeminent meteorology program, and football. I think they play football there. But when Penn State University was founded in 1863, it was an agricultural college, one of the first of the so-called land-grant schools. And if you pause even a moment and think, you'll remember that Yeah, there are cows all over the place, with meadows running right up to the stadium. Drive out past Pine Grove Mills and you'll see acres and acres of Penn State fields. As well as cows, they raise turkeys, hogs, and bees. Pennsylvanians benefit directly from these programs, which are designed to improve agriculture in the state. Here in Center County, we benefit on a more individual level. We can buy ice cream and milk at the Berkey Creamery on campus, for instance. And the focus of this episode is that we can also buy meat at the Penn State Butcher Block, the student-run meat store on campus, right in the shadow of Beaver Stadium. I have a great interview for you with Dr. Jonathan Campbell from the Department of Animal Science at Penn State. We talk about Penn State's responsibilities as a land-grant college, the farms around campus, the Butcher Block retail store, well, a lot of things really, because Dr. Campbell is a good talker, has a lot to tell us including answers to some questions some of you submitted on Facebook. We'll have to do that again. It actually worked out pretty well. And like a big roast or a juicy pile of fresh grilled steaks, this interview is a delicious main course for our podcast meal. However, what I don't have for you this time are the salad, sides, and soup. You may also notice that this is not the town profile I promised you last time, This episode is a good one, but it's a bit of a stopgap for reasons that were somewhat beyond my control. The past two weeks have been a bit hectic here, as we did finally move back into our Milheim house and started unpacking. I just went over to our storage units and picked up a load of kitchen stuff and glassware this afternoon. Sure could have used some of this stuff two weeks ago for the Burns Night dinner, and this was supposed to happen back in December when I took two weeks off for the podcast. Oh well. Sadly, I'm also handling the unsettlingly swift demise of my Uncle Don, whom some of you may remember from stories I've told in print or on social media. Don was my wingman on many brewery research trips when I was doing the Pennsylvania and New York breweries books, including a marathon session in Buffalo, New York, that took us to at least 10 bars and breweries and lasted till almost 3 a.m. I also took Don along on a trip to Dusseldorf and Cologne back in, I think, 2005, even though he was about 20 years older than me, in his mid-60s, and didn't speak a single word of German other than beer, I had a hard time keeping up. Don was a quiet, implacable force of nature when it came to food and drink. 
Thanksgiving dinner at my grandmother May's was never over until Don pushed away his plate and reached for a piece of celery, his usual end-of-meal palate cleanser before pie was served. He made his own hot pepper wine, which was served to unsuspecting guests at the hunting camp he and his friends had near Dublin Gap in Cumberland County. There were still four bottles of his hot pepper wine in the back of his small liquor cabinet at the retirement home when my Aunt Alice told me to go ahead and clean it out last week. If you're ever over to the house and I offer you a glass of wine, you might want to give it a good dosing before trying it. Alice and Don didn't have any kids, so I've been filling in, running down to Lancaster to visit, to support Aunt Alice and get some chores done for her, generally handle stuff that she can't. Don's about to cash his check, I'm afraid, and it's a tough time. So I didn't really have the time or the spirit to go do bar and restaurant visits in the towns I was looking at for profiles, but I did have this interview waiting. I was planning on making it the centerpiece of an episode on local butcher shops, but that's going to have to wait. Maybe I'll talk to a hog farmer for that episode instead. Anyway, my apologies. It's still a good interview, and we're going to get to it. But first, here's what I'm drinking today. Last episode, I told you we were going to be doing an informal Burns Night dinner. Well, actually more a Burns Night-themed birthday party for two good friends. Burns Night being what it is, we dug into the Scotch whiskey pretty deep. I opened up the cellar and we had a Johnny Walker Platinum, some 15-year-old Glen Goyne, a Lafroy Kerchus bottling, and a 31-year-old Glenfiddich single barrel. They were all good, but the next morning, the one I remembered most fondly was a simple bottle of Bomore 12-year-old. Bomore Distilleries on Isla, the renowned island off Scotland's southwest coast, home to fabled distilleries like Lafroig and Lagavulin and Ardbeg, Kalila, Bunahaven, Brookladdy, and Bomore. Bomore sits right on the shore of Loch Indal, a sea lock that opens onto the North Atlantic Ocean. When a gale blows up in the ocean, those waves beat against the seawall at the distillery, and spray flies into the courtyard in front of the Bomore No. 1 vaults reputed to be the oldest whiskey warehouse in Scotland. I've been to Bomore. I've turned a few shovels in their malt house, and I've drunk whiskey there, so maybe there's a certain amount of personal preference here. But it's also just a pretty damn good whiskey. Let's have at it. Wow. Uh, the first, very first thing you notice is the smoke. As I said, uh, they have their own malt house. Pete uh, smokes through it there, and that's what you're smelling right off the bat. Actually, I was, I was smelling it before I even picked up the glass. So what is it? It's, there's a certain amount of uh, sweet bonfire there. There is some brininess, a surprising amount of fruit, kind of uh, maybe uh, tart berry, plum, maybe some stewed apple, but a lot of smoke. And it's, it's a, it's a clean, sweet smoke. This is not, not one of your diesel-y or, um, Fishnet peat smoke smells. Mm. It's pretty clean. Some woody stuff, some leaves. Let's try it and see what it tastes like. Mm. So that pretty much recapitulates on the palate. There's a, a quick hit of um, almost an ashiness up front that quickly dissipates, and that sweetness comes through. There's a lot of malt in this whiskey. Now, this is a, a fairly young whiskey at 12 years old, and the immediate what the immediate thought is to is to dismiss a younger whiskey as it's just not as good or whatever but the thing is the the 
beauty of a younger Scotch whiskey is that you get a lot more influence from the actual spirit, the distillate, and less so from the uh, from the barrel. So what you're getting here is more smoke, uh, more of that malt and fruit from the fermentation, and that's really coming through here. A lot of smoke, but not overwhelming or killing because of, like I said, this is really more of a a clean smoke, more like a bonfire on the beach, as uh, as they like to say on Isle, and and like to do on Isle. Mm. And then there's a a finish in which the the smoke is more of a a framing, and the real finish is about the the distillate. It's about the the sweet cereal note of the of the malt. It's about the um, fruity esters of the fermentation, and that's you know it is a young whiskey, and it hits a bit like a young whiskey. And there are things about older whiskeys that people like that I like, but this this is a wow. This is kind of like my old granddad of Scotch. Uh, you can just grab a bottle of this, sit down with some friends and you're going to enjoy the whiskey and it's not going to overtake everything. It's just a good, good glass of whiskey. I'd have to have another one of those after the show's over. I did this interview back in December when I talked to Dr. Campbell about baking your holiday ham. We were in a small room in the basement of the meat lab with concrete block walls and a small wooden table. Not ideal conditions for recording, so there's a bit of an echo and the occasional rumble from the table when he tapped it to emphasize a point. It's not thunder, I swear. But the content will likely make you forget all that. So put on your goggles and white coat follow me into the meat lab. Hey, I'm here with uh, Dr. Jonathan Campbell. He's a um, meat extension specialist at the meat lab at Penn State. I wanted to talk about butcher shops, and I thought I'd, I'd start where, where things start, where Fantastic. people learn to do it. I look forward to talking about it. <laughs> All right. Um, one of the first things I wanted to ask was, you're listed on the PSU website as a meat extension specialist, and it it seems like there's a fair amount to unpack in just that title. So can we talk about that? Uh, I mean, the Absolutely. whole extension program. I mean, I remember hearing about that as part of, I mean, that's part of the agricultural college mission, right? It is. It is It is the main reason why Penn State exists. So uh-huh. Penn State is one of many land grants across the country. And so the, the land grant mission encompasses teaching undergraduates, research, training graduate students, and then education, uh, extension or education to the community, outreach to the community, to those industry stakeholders, perhaps. And uh, that's my primary role here and one of the many hats that I have here at the university. How, how do they get to you? I mean, is that a constant, remember I'm here? That no. Kind of, oh, okay, uh, good. No, it's not. I mean, um, so certainly a lot of states will have a county-based system and Pennsylvania has offices and still in every county. Now, are these agents from, I mean, essentially t- dealt with by Penn State, or is that from the Department of Agriculture? Um, so it, it could, uh, they are employees of Penn State. Wow. Okay. All, I didn't all know across that. the Commonwealth. Okay. 
And their goal could be to, uh, for instance, our family and consumer scientists. They may work with consumers dealing with home canning, or oh. you might have livestock agents that, that work with cattle producers or sheep producers or swine producers all throughout the Commonwealth. Okay. And so we try to have various disciplines all throughout the, the Commonwealth to, to help complete some of that outreach mission as part of our land grant system. Um, and our, our, our true goal is to um, really enrich the lives of Pennsylvanians, but also to be kind of, uh, if, if you will, the, the translation arm between basic science to practical applied science. And so basic oh, okay. science may be very specific disciplines. They may be difficult for the layperson to understand, and it's important that Extension takes that science-based education and uses it in an applied format so that it can, it can do what part of that mission is, which is to enrich the lives in some way, either to help with a food safety mission, for instance, or help with a disease outbreak. We may have heard in the media about high path avian influenza. Oh, right. And that was a, you know, was a, a big combined deal. effort with extension specialists, extension uh, agents, um, USDA personnel, as well as PDA or Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture, all in an effort to try to combat that, the spread of that disease. Well, that was a, I guess I, that must've been like an all hands on deck moment. It certainly is. Yeah. And, and those are the reasons why you have, uh, extension specialists uh, to help coordinate some of those efforts, um, e- even you know within within the Commonwealth, but even across state lines uh, where you oh, have okay, good. you have border states where you know we bur- we border a lot of states. Right. Pennsylvania is not a small state, and, yeah. And so when you have disease outbreaks, it may take multiple states involved in in uh, borderline cases where you have say a farm that's on the border of another state. You know, when you were saying that, I was thinking, wow, and we really border on a lot of ag states, but they're almost all ag states, aren't they? They they are. They really are. Even New Jersey uh, and and New York, which traditionally maybe not be thought of, but there's a lot of agriculture in those states. I used to live next to the part of New Jersey where they grew a lot of stuff. They sure do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You can't pump your own gas, but (laughs) (laughs) better pick your own blueberries. Um, I did have some questions that listeners submitted, um, and they wanted to know about essentially who who are the students at at the Meat Lab? What are they? Is that like a whole four year course or? Uh, it is, and so I, I wouldn't say it's a course per se as much as they they actually have a job. Okay. Uh, they are paid employees of our meat science laboratory. Oh, okay. Um, we could not operate without them. They are. Uh, it adds value to their time here as a student, um, but it certainly adds value to our facility. Um, our our students. Um, our farms are fairly unique in the Department of Animal Science. So. The meat lab is is a uh, considered a, an auxiliary unit in the department, similar to our beef sheep center or our swine center, our poultry center, horse farm, dairy farm, uh, and our our white-tailed deer research facility. Oh, and so oh. all of the <laughs> all of those uh, farms, mm-hmm. quote, quote unquote, uh, if you will, they all have a unique quality. Number one, we are very blessed here to have all of our units still very close or on campus. I was going to ask, are yeah. the farms all right here? They all are right here. We do certainly have other farms throughout the throughout the state and throughout the region. Okay. Um, as most land grants do, you have other um, property that the university may own where 
research is done. For instance, Biglerville, where a lot of fruit research is done. Oh, okay. Those are still considered farms, if you will. Uh-huh. Um, they may not be animal agriculture farms, but right. agriculture nonetheless. Uh, there's property out towards Rock Springs where um, a lot of horticulture and, and plant research, crop research is done. So there are farms off campus, but we're very blessed here to have all of our animal farms, not all of, but the majority of our animal farms very close to campus and technically on campus. Yeah, I mean, so many people have mentioned the, the cows, right? I mean, you can always get a picture of the stadium Absolutely. with cows right there. Yeah, it's, that's very important. Um, and certainly uh, a lot of the Angus herd that is near the hospital and, and near our, our, our beef ship center, um, where a lot of people think of as tailgate parking. Those are actually pastures that you're parking in, so we do a lot more than just tailgating at this university. We're certainly very expert in the tailgating. Indeed. Uh, scene. And I imagine there's a certain amount of intersection there with the, with the meat lab and tailgating. Hopefully, hopefully not, um, but, but yeah, there is, there is tailgating right beside our facility. Wow, wow. And that's, I mean, I should mention, I mean, the facility is right beside the stadium. How did that happen? It just kind of happened? Well, we were here first. Okay. <laughs> that's a great uh, reason. And if you if you really look, um, uh, think about where the stadium used to be over near Rec Hall. Okay. Um, this building was built where there was a lot of farm and farmland and, and uh, tree groves and fruit trees and, and pasture land. And everything built up around it. The, the baseball stadium was not here, which is adjacent to us. The now what is now the, the athletic uh, ad, administration building, formerly the the Center County Welcome. The hospital um, was yeah. that, is that uh, hospital's fairly new. Yeah. Um, and and so all of that was not here in the fifties when this building wow. was built. So it is kind of cool that uh, we. I mean, because of those farms, I mean, there's a lot of green around here. There is a lot of green. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty great. People wondered if they're working at the butcher block, could they be any year in college? Or they is that could for, be. Okay. Yeah. Um, we actually had a fairly unique situation this fall. Um, we had what's known as a matriculated minor, which means we had someone who's 17 years of age oh. actually enter college. Uh-huh. And they didn't turn 18 until, uh, say, late September, early October, where their, where their birthday fell. And that that was a unique situation for us because there's some limitations of what a minor, oh. a quote minor, can and cannot do um, working for a facility like this. Oh. Um, they can't handle a knife, for instance. They, okay. They can't lift more than, say, 10 pounds. And although this person was certainly capable of, <laughs> of doing all those activities by law, they cannot. And, and so um, you have to take into consideration... Um, some of that, but most of our students are, I would say, between the, the age of 18 and their early 20s. Okay. Um, and they could be any any class um, in at, at the university. We they not are not all animal science majors, although oh, a lot oh, a lot that. of okay. them are. Um, you know, we certainly have other ag disciplines within the College of Agriculture, and we've even had students that that come from outside the college that either maybe have a farm background or or grew up uh, wanting to learn more about uh, food processing or meat processing. We've had en- engineers. Oh. Uh, you don't think of that as, no. as, a, <laughs> as an activity, but process engineers make a lot of the equipment that, that we utilize. I, so, I, I have learned that engineering gets into a lot more things than I thought it did. Absolutely it does. Yeah. So that gives us a, a, a good 
entree, if you would, into the into the butcher block. Let's sure. talk about that. Absolutely. So it's certainly not the primary reason why we were here. Right. Um, I mean, it's on the other hand, for a lot of the listeners, it is that public face. It is. It is. Yeah. And um, so our, our Friday meat sales are are simply a way to fund fund the program. Oh, okay. Uh, other than a, a lot of the utilities, um, from a budgetary standpoint, the meat lab gets zero dollars to operate, and so wow. we're 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 kind of entrepreneurial in the <laughs> sense of. Um, keeping our our teaching and and uh, extension some of our extension programming going, that helps to um, fund positions. It funds some of the student activity. It helps to uh, support the the teaching, research, and extension activities that happen at this location. Um, one of the downfalls to that is unlike the the creamery, for instance. So if you've ever had Penn State ice cream. There's a lot of students working in in that sales area, but the creameries is a nice facility because they have separate production facilities and separate teaching and research facilities all throughout that food science building. Uh-huh. Whereas we have a shared space, um, oh. and and so we have to really be mindful about scheduling and and when things happen, um, what sort of activities are are ongoing. Um, taking a basic meat science course through our Animal Science 207 class, which one of my colleagues, Dr. Ed Mills, teaches and, and has for many years. <clears throat> that is required for all um, undergraduates wanting a degree in animal science to take. So we would have at any one point in time uh, somewhere between 100 to 150 undergraduates okay. come through this facility within I, a given year. I was year. wondering how many, how many students we were talking about. Okay. Yeah. And then certainly you have other courses. Um, food science has a, an advanced processing class that's required of all food science. It's a, it's a 400 level class. Um, and so all food science students would come here oh, every spring to take okay. that class. Um, and then other classes would utilize this facility uh, throughout the, throughout the year, as well as the extension activities that we would have. Now, what opportunities are there here for, um, I don't know, like a local butcher shop? I mean, yeah. is that just a, we have a question, or is it something where they might come here to learn how to do a different process? Or Yeah, that's a great question. And the answer to that is both of those that, okay. that you mentioned. So there might be some uh, both lecture and hands-on training that would happen in a, a workshop or a short course. Um, every spring, we host the Pennsylvania Association of Meat Processors annual convention, and the, the pre-convention on Thursday and Friday is all right here at the meat lab, oh, where cool. um, all meat processors and butchers that are, that are wanting to learn more about that will have an educational session, hands-on hands-on session as well as as lectures um, from various speakers all across the United States just to talk about um, modern topics and meat processing are there regulatory changes that may be coming and try to keep keep uh, a, a good educational activity associated with that with that conference okay um, now, I, I gotta I have to ask because it's driving me crazy because I get I have a it's just what I do I have a thing about words sure Difference between a meat processor and a butcher? Nothing. Is it scale? Oh, no, okay. All right. Nothing. <laughs> um, technically, when you the the act of butchery would be to go through harvesting livestock and then processing, um, but but meat processing encompasses that activity plus further processing. So, um, you know, we in in your holiday segment we talked about ham curing, and so that that is meat processing. Okay. Um, making hot dogs, making. 
um, fermented uh, snack items. Those, those are those are types of, of activities that meat processing would encompass all of those things. Okay. So you, you may use those words interchangeably, but I, I say meat processor because I deal with all of those uh, particular activities when I when I help someone who has a need. Okay. So you're dealing with the whole range of things. Absolutely. Right. Okay. Okay, local butchers. Let's get down into the level where my, where my listeners are. Perfect. Okay. Do you have advice for people on, on how to, I mean, how to identify a good local butcher? Um, that's, that's actually a very tough question, um, and it depends on what you're trying to do. Are you, are you simply, as a consumer, trying to identify a local butcher or as a livestock producer trying to identify oh, some place to take. I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah. yeah. And okay. so if it's, if it's just from the consumer side, um, certainly buying local or somewhere near you is, is really about developing relationships. Right. And when you go to develop a relationship, it's not like going to a big box store. And um, that, that is really part of the experience of going to a local small shop, whether it, regardless of what they're selling, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if it's a, if it's a local coffee shop, as opposed to going to a chain coffee shop, those, yeah. those are the types of, of activities where you get to know, uh, who's working there. You develop a relationship. Hopefully they have some education and what they're trying to, <laughs> to share with their consumers, regardless of what they're trying to sell. And so that, that's really the, one of the key differences that I would, I would say, um, if you can find some place within, say, a, a thirty or forty minute drive, where you identify with with the individuals and you're, you're made to feel welcome, and you receive a little bit of education along the way, they have great products to sell as well. Um, and so, <clears throat> don't be afraid to talk to them and, and start to develop that relationship. Would be be my best advice to those consumers. Yeah, you really do have to put a little bit of work in it yourself. You do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas in a supermarket, you just go, you look at the price, you look at the weight. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I love that part. <laughs> but certainly with meat products, consumers are going to purchase with their eyes first. And so right. if you walk into a place and you're not happy with what you see, you're probably not going to buy a lot of product there or buy anything at all. So that's actually, a, I mean, that was, that was something I was just thinking about that was bugging me. If it doesn't look right, is it probably not right or? Not necessarily. Okay. Um, so for instance, color, meat color uh-huh. is, a, is a big topic. And just because meat, uh, if it turns brown, we assume that it is no longer good. And that's that's not accurate at all. That's a pretty quick surface reaction? It, it, it could be. Okay. Um, and it's also um, a function of the type of lighting that that, that uh, oh, processor right, sure. would use. So if you have too bright of a light or too hot of a light or both, that could really change the color really fast of that product. Uh-huh. Uh, another example, and that's just simply um, changing the, the chemistry of what's happening inside that fresh meat product. Uh, if you stack meat on top of itself and leave it there for, say, 30 minutes or so, when you come back and pull it apart, there may be brown spots where that meat was touching each that other quickly. that quickly because <clears throat> you're taking away the oxygen at certain places. And if you leave it alone, a lot of times it will, what we refer to uh, at, at, from a meat processing standpoint, it will rebloom, if you will, like, oh, okay. a, like a flower. It will, yeah. <laughs> it, will re, it will rebloom uh, in the spring. Um, uh, but in all seriousness, a lot of, a lot of times those, those color defects, uh, if you will, aren't permanent. Okay. In some ways they, they may be. Um, but so quality of the shelf life. Um, by appearance, is not necessarily have anything to do with the true shelf life and safety of that product. Okay. Are there any, I don't know, simple 
touch or smell things that people can not really no wow unfortunately, unfortunately <laughs> they're not and you, you know that's that's why color is such a very important topic with with fresh meat okay uh, because consumers are driven by that color and i can i can tell you this all day long but if it doesn't look good you're simply not going to buy you're probably it. not going to buy and it. i i'm yeah. not any any um anybody to tell you to change your mind <laughs> <laughs> well there was another um and again i'm just going into my own personal stuff here I have had, I mean, fresh cut pork that I, I watched, literally watched the butcher slice package give to me and I get it home and the next day it smells kind of funky, but it cooks up fine. What, yeah. Is that just surface stuff? Or? It could be. Um, it could be. Um, you might need to check the temperature of your refrigerator at home. Okay. All <laughs> so right. It's, it's always good to do that. Um, most home refrigerators maybe aren't cold enough, and so certainly we want that. Where, that where do you want them? Somewhere between 34 and 38 degrees would, okay. be, would be ideal. Okay. Um, 34 might be a little cold for some of your food yeah, products. Ours is running about 37. That's perfect. Pretty steady. That's okay, perfect. good. Right in that temperature range. <laughs> That's great. Less than 40 for sure. Okay. All right. <laughs> Sometimes uh, the local butcher will have much better prices on things than uh, a supermarket. And yet on other things, it'll be a lot higher. What's good? Is that just, I don't know, what is that, supply? Or? It, it is supply. A lot of grocers, because they're buying in, in large volumes, that's how they're able to um, reduce the cost of something that maybe, maybe costs more. It also depends on what that uh, local consumer wants and so if you have uh, a high demand for for steaks that's that the local economics is going to drive the price of those steaks up yeah combined with you're talking about much smaller volumes in a local butcher shop as opposed to a chain grocery store for instance yeah Uh, and so those simple economics were something that may be cheaper or unique. You might have local uh, butcher shops and markets that offer items that other stores do not. Um, and that could be to try to serve that general area or region where they're trying to serve uh, and where the consumer base may be different. I, I mean, I know I, our local, uh, I'm in, out in Milheim, Penns Valley Meat Market. Yeah. Every week they have tri-tip. They're fantastic. I remember. <laughs> I remember trying to find tri-tip down in Bucks County. I was. I was going driving miles to find it. It's every week he's got yeah. it. So that brings me to the next question, which is, are there are there cuts that maybe we should be looking at more that we that we're overlooking? You know, it's interesting as um, a lot of the food channels and cooking channels uh, that have inundated cable TV networks. That's pretty um, seems, well covered it's, now. It's very well covered, and and you'll we, you'll see a consumer demand somewhat driven by that. Uh-huh. Um, you used to not so if be the show able talks to, about <laughs> hanger steak. All of a sudden, everybody wants hanger Absolutely. steak. Absolutely, and keep in mind, there's only one. Right, right. <laughs> so, hanger steak, skirt steak, flank steak, all of those um, what used to be not high end cuts are now high end cuts. Yeah, short ribs, very high demand. Oh, right. You used to not be able to get rid of brisket 30, 40 years ago, and now everybody wants the whole brisket to barbecue and yeah. experiment with. And either social media followings that are happening in the food realm uh, or TV shows that are happening, they'll drive a lot of the demand by consumer just by. Yeah, and I'm going to go back I and edit this, out that tri tip bit. I don't want that. <laughs> 
I see it. Well, tri-tip's a fantastic cut. It really is. And, uh, you know, there's a couple of cuts from the sirloin, tri-tip being one of them, and then the, the sirloin cap or picanha oh, uh-huh. um, that, that is, is popular in South America. That, that is, both of those are, they have fantastic flavor. They're, they're nice and tender if they're cooked properly, not yeah. overcooked and, um, and sliced properly. I just, last year, got one of the, um, I got a Kamado Joe. Oh, yeah? Yeah, and yeah. man, everyone is talking about the picanha. Everybody yeah. wants to get that on their rotisserie. I'm like, I've never heard of this. Yeah, they're, they're, it's, a, it's a fantastic cut of beef and great beef flavor, nice and tender cut. Nice. And don't overseason it. That's the key because oh, okay. those 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 products have great flavor. Uh-huh. Um, but traditionally they would be very lightly seasoned, if at all. Maybe just some some sea salt and that's it. Yeah. You know, I gotta say, this is the thing that drives me crazy about cooking lately. I, I keep seeing people saying, Oh, all that guy uses is salt and pepper. I'm like, Yeah. Yeah. Like, right, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, this is one of the things that gets yeah, so the butcher block, and I'm sure you're teaching them this, but the way everything is so neatly packaged with the white paper. I mean, and I see the same thing. I know cheesemongers have competitions about this. What's the, is that just economies or is it looking good or is there a science behind it? Certainly um, packaging is an important science within itself. Okay. Um, but the, the the butcher paper that, that we use to package most of our products some products we actually vacuum seal. Oh, uh, we have we have uh, several vacuum sealers upstairs in our processing areas, and it just depends on on what our goals are with the with the product type, um, and it what type of product it is. If um, for some weird reason we would have product left over after a Friday fr- Friday meat sale, we're one of the few universities that still does a fresh meat sale. Mm-hmm. Um, and that takes a lot of effort to do, but that butcher paper should be something that is not only is, does it, does it look nice? It does provide a little bit of a freezer barrier. So if customers oh, okay. aren't going to use that immediately within, you know, f- uh, three to five days after they purchase it here, they could stick that in the freezer and that's going to provide a little bit of a freezer barrier as opposed to say a, a styrofoam tray with just a plastic overwrap. That might look nice in, right. in, in a case, but that's certainly not meant to protect the product uh, for freezing. If I'm, and I have put some of your packages directly in the freezer and everything's worked out great. Yeah. If I've got fresh meat that I, I mean, say something comes up and I have to leave home for a few days, what's the best way to wrap that for the freezer if I don't have a vacuum sealer? So uh, the best way to wrap that is to get a freezer paper or butcher paper. Typically that would have uh, kind of a shiny side or a waxy side. And mm-hmm. that's, that's that barrier. And that's going to be what contacts the that's meat directly. The side you, okay. Um, uh, to add even more barrier, you could wrap it in plastic film first. Okay. Try to get as much air out of that product. That's really the, um, the air component is really what, that's, that's what, what you're working on. Okay. Facilitates some of the freezer burn that we're worried about. And what is it? Is it dehydration or? Yes, it is. Okay. And you get ice crystals forming and you get damage to the product and, uh, it's not, it's not unsafe to eat. It's just, it, it reduces the quality the of the yeah, product. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so you could have that plastic barrier and then wrap it, um, pretty tightly and just make sure that, that it's, it's wrapped. Um, I, I can't tell listeners how to wrap sure, products, sure. but, but I'm sure there's a lot of, um, videos. Just get it as online. tight as you can. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh God, there's, a video for um, there's, there's also, there's also a lot of videos of how to do it wrong. So. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And as far as that goes, is a vacuum sealer a good buy? It is a good buy. Okay. Uh, those food savers are pretty economical. 
you certainly can't use normal vacuum seal pouches with that type of a vacuum sealer, but um, there are uh, some of the small chamber vacuum packagers are getting more more affordable now. And you're mm-hmm. seeing a lot of, uh, I would say, more sports-related stores, oh. uh, chain-related stores start to carry some of that uh-huh. um, smaller pilot processing equipment. Great. And, uh, you know, vacuum sealer is just a, a great way that, you know, in a three millimeter or four millimeter um, plastic uh, pouch mm-hmm. that product's going to last in a freezer at zero degrees or sub zero for six to 12 months. Yeah. So that, that if you're really worried about, you know, with, with things costing more now, mm-hmm. that's a great way to save a little bit of money on products that, you know, I, I bought it at this price. And so next year when it's even more, I, I can, I'm ready to go. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Put one of those on my Christmas list. One of the listeners, he was talking about the whole cured meats thing, and he likes cured meats. But he's like, why does that even work? Yeah. You know, how is this, you're fermenting beef? How is that even safe? How does that work? What's it doing? <clears throat> yeah, so so fermentation and curing are two different activities. Okay. Um, curing would just simply be a, a, a means to preserve the product. It it keeps it the, the product um, to combat path, food pathogens. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the main ones we're concerned about when we cure products are is botulism, uh-huh. and so Clostridium botulinum is the food pathogen that we're concerned about. They produce botulinum toxin, um, and now we've we've pretty much gotten rid of it in our in our food products, and so we use that toxin to do things like inject it into our face. <laughs> <laughs> right, <laughs> but but in all seriousness, that's that's typically a different type of of botulinum toxin. Um, as opposed to the the food neurotoxin mm-hmm. that we're concerned about, it goes back to basic food safety. Keep cold items cold. Keep hot items hot, and don't let things uh, food items sit around on the counter at, at room temperature for a, an extended period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, after something's cooked, use it hot and or get it into the refrigerator to chill it down as fast as possible. Okay, so. Curing items helps to prevent some of that toxin from ever happening and uh, just helps to preserve that product from from a, not only a color standpoint, but also a food safety standpoint. Okay. And smoking, where does that Smoking is also an antimicrobial. And how's that and, working? Uh, smoking is a, another form of food preservation that we inherited pre-refrigeration. Yeah. So curing, smoking was all a way to help uh, preserve meat items. If you think back into the, you know, 1800s or, or, or longer, um, we didn't have ice boxes and refrigerators. Right. You had to do something. Had to do something. And so smoking was a great way to, um, not only add color and flavor to that product through the process of smoking, it maybe dehydrated the product a little bit okay. and helped to help to preserve that, that meat product and, and keep it, keep it longer. Okay, and then the fermentation. Yeah, so fermentation. Mean, we were talking about like salami yeah. and bologna. Salam- and- yeah, so salamis or, or uh, you know, your traditional Lebanon bolognese, those, mm-hmm. are, those are typically fermented meat products where um, they may taste a little tangy or a little sweet, and that's because of the good bacteria that we are putting into those oh, products. Okay. That science, if you will, of fermentation, not all bacteria produce an acid. Um, for instance, when you create a, a a beer or a wine or something, those those bacteria are producing alcohol and carbon dioxide, 
And so you see, um, you know, when you see fermentation from, from a, a grain standpoint, you might have uh, alcohol being produced or bubbles being produced from that alcohol. We don't want that to happen in a meat product. Oh, right. And so we need to make sure that we, choo- we are choosing oh, right. okay. yeah. the specific type of microorganisms that produce lactic acid inside the meat product. And that typically happens at a set temperature. Um, that temperature is determined by the type of uh, what we call starter culture or bacteria that we use. Then we give that, that bacteria uh, an energy source, generally in the form of sugar. Oh, okay. And so it ferments sugar and creates lactic acid. And all this acid. stuff just gets blended into it gets, the... It gets slowly blended in naturally okay. um, into the product during the first uh, 10, 10 hours to up to three days, depending on on the type of culture that you're using and the type of te- the, the temperature at which you're fermenting. Okay. So. And how do you know when it's done? Uh, that's a great question. I, um, I, and I ask because I've had like amateur bolognese that were, that were definitely not done. Yeah. So that, 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 uh, that, that starts with a, a, a clean surface. Okay. So if you, if you don't have good food safety practices to begin with, you're going to get uh, potentially other things growing in that product that you don't want happening. Okay. And that's not a good thing. So um, it's not sterile by any means, because if right. it was sterile, we, we wouldn't get fermentation. Oh, okay, uh, but right. it is clean and it is sanitized. Okay. And so that, that helps to get rid of the bacteria that we don't want in mm-hmm. that product. Typically, during a salami manufacturing, it's not only fermented, it's also dried. Okay. And so that, that would be at a, maybe a little bit cooler temperature, say 50 degrees, 60 degrees Fahrenheit. This is what the hanging is for? That's what the hanging is for. Okay. And, and that's just allowing moisture to slowly migrate from the center of the product and then be evaporated um, in, in the form of water vapor from the surface. Okay. And so you need, a, you need temperature, humidity control, and then air velocity control. Oh. You, don't, you don't want too slow of an airspeed because you might get mold formation. Uh-huh. Unless you want mold formation. Right. And then we're going to choose which mold we want to grow on the surface of that product and make sure we put just that mold on the surface. Okay. Um, and some <clears throat> some products, uh, you know, your tra- all your traditional Italian salamis, especially in certain regions of Italy, would have that nice white, that white blue. penicillium mold on the yeah. on the surface of that product. Now is that a, is that a flavor thing or a, it's not? It's, it's an aesthetic. It's more of a. It's actually a biopreservative if you want to think oh, of it that oh, way. Oh, okay. So it helps. Uh, it's kind of like a. a a t-shirt in the summertime that has a wicking effect. Uh-huh. So that that mold acts to help slowly oh. wick moisture to the surface. Okay. It controls the speed at which we lose water uh, more efficiently. It certainly has a nice color appearance to it, but it really doesn't add flavor. When we when we uh, go to package that product, we're going to take all that mold off the surface of okay. the product. But if you don't want mold, you need to make sure that the airflow um, is is at a speed where mold is not uh, attaching to the surface of that product and growing, but it's not so high that you are over drying the surface of the product. In that case, you're going to do what's called case hardening a salami. Oh. And it basically uh, rots from the inside out because you have over dried the surface. Moisture oh. is no longer allowed to migrate to the outside. Uh-huh. And so too high of a fan speed is, is worse than too low, and you get some, some wow. minor mold formation, in my opinion. So. That's <clears throat> Wow, okay. I'm sorry, it's just more, much more complicated than I thought. It is, and that's why um, you should really um, get some education associated mm-hmm. with trying, if you're trying to do this at home, because you, you, you certainly don't want to make anybody sick from, from making products like right. that. 
So right, same listener. A question that fascinated me: the different, I guess the different. I don't know any way to put it. Different sausage traditions in different regions of Europe are they are they based on more on processing or spices or do you have yes. any, anything on that? Okay, good. Yeah, yes, <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> yeah. Um, some of it's just simply based off of what they had. Okay, um, but, but prior to a lot of global trade if you will mm-hmm. um, where you could get something that's grown in other parts of the world we shouldn't have any spices here at all because yeah. spices don't grow here in the right. united states um but in all seriousness um a lot of the the flavor profiles and and traditions behind um what products were made had to do with maybe the local economy as well mm-hmm. as um the the spices and seasonings that were available to that to that particular area whether it was pork, beef, or lamb, also had to do with what livestock were maybe right. pre- prevalent in particular areas. Climate, soil. Yeah. So, yeah. for instance, most of your Northern European or Germanic-style sausages, there are a lot of beef in those products because there is more beef in that part of the world than maybe in Eastern Europe or uh, Asia or Southern Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, Italy, for instance, there's a lot more swine than there are cattle. Yeah, I'm thinking uh, in, uh, what, Spain is lamb? Absolutely. And, yeah. Yeah. And France, you know, you have a lot of a lot of lambs and you get more towards um, Asia and, and the Middle East. You have a lot more sheep and goats involved. And in, in so you would have products from, from those types of species. And, and in other cultures, you can't eat swine. Yeah. So yeah. It, it, uh, it boils down to where in the world it is, what what's available. Um, as well as um, certain religious sects and religious beliefs associated with what products are made and, and how those different sausages come about. Yeah. So it's kind of fascinating, really. It really is. I mean, there's a whole geographical and cultural component to Absolutely. everything. Yeah, right? and, and I, that's one thing that, that drew me to this, this, uh, this discipline. I'm constantly learning. Yes. And as especially as you travel around the different parts of the country or even different different countries, you're constantly learning about new items or, or ways to, as we would say, Americanize them. <laughs> uh, and and uh, they would probably think that we're bastardizing them. But in, in all seriousness, it's, a, it's a, a great education for me. That's great. That's great. I hadn't thought about that. So uh, finally, wrap up the butcher block. Again, people told me, okay, I've, I've been once. I'll, I'll, I'll confess here. I went once and everyone told me, you got to get there early and get in line. And That's true. We got there early, and holy crap, I think we were 16. <laughs> wow, wow. Yeah, it was half an hour before we even get in the door. What runs out first? Our steaks. Okay. Um, we, we try to dry age our beef that, that comes from our beef farms. If it's in the case, it was born here, raised here, processed here on campus. And so that's, Is that that's just the beef or everything? Everything. Everything. And so that's okay. our beef, pork, and lamb that you would see in the case. That's, that's all... Um, again, born here, raised here, processed here, all on campus. Students definitely involved in all uh, aspects of, of that product from uh, the, the live animal side all the way to the meat product. And so that's one thing that's very unique about the product. Um, some customers come because of that. Mm-hmm. Some come because it, it's at Penn State. <laughs> oh, okay, sure. Some come because they believe it, it's a better product or tastes better. And everybody has a unique scenario as to why that would happen. So our steaks uh, would would certainly go first. Um, we dry age our beef, which is 
the process of allowing that carcass to hang under refrigeration for 14 to 21 days minimum. So you're losing losing water? Losing water. Else? Losing water. Uh, it's certainly developing flavor and okay. hopefully helping to naturally tenderize that product. Oh, okay. And so that's some of the key differences with uh, a dry-aged product versus something that, that is not. Okay. So it's a very unique flavor, texture, um, and, and in, in some in some instances, aroma. You know? Oh. So part of, part of that flavor perception is aroma as well. Uh-huh. Say it's... I don't know. One thirty in the afternoon. What what what's left? It 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 really depends on the Friday. I'll be perfectly oh, okay. honest with you. Um, uh, I've I've been here eleven years now, and uh, it, it baffled me that the the crowd that's here on a Friday for a home football game is from all over. You uh, you know certainly um, you have uh, recreational vehicles come in on a Thursday night before a home football game by droves from all over the country. And that really changes the demographic of who yeah. who our customers are on that Friday, whereas a lot of the local personnel will stay away. Um, <laughs> and I understand why. That's why um, I have home games marked on my calendar. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so this was always a first-come, first-serve right. um, store. Simply because we just simply don't have the the uh, employee and staff to be able to do anything different. We also don't have the volume to be able yeah. to do, uh, you know, online purchases or box purchases, and it works. It works quite well. Um, not everybody's always satisfied. Uh, we certainly don't like to not have satisfied customers. But you ask what's what's available in the afternoon. Um, we still, we still might have a, a lot of product available by one o'clock in the afternoon. Okay. Um, certainly all of our processed products are always available simply because we're able, because they have more shelf life, it's not fresh meat. We can Carry make over. those weeks in advance. Yeah. Um, we also, uh, produce a lot of product for the creamery, uh, for them to oh, sell. Okay. And so our snack sticks, summer sausage, um, anything that is what we consider those, those Convenience items are always available. Um, our sausages, ground beef, um, those are typically always available. Roast um, mm-hmm. um, would be available. Steaks are tough. Steaks are tough. Okay, um, but you still might have and and lamb would tough would, oh, would be okay. tough as well. Let, let me let me rephrase that because right, our right. lamb <laughs> our lamb is not tough. I was thinking that as you said that word. <laughs> our product I... is not tough, <laughs> but. It, it may be difficult. Difficult to, is a better word to yeah. to purchase. <laughs> okay. Um, wow, I have so many more questions. We're just going to have to do this again at some time. That's Thank fan- you. That would be fantastic. Thank you so much. This has been educational, and I'm I'm really looking forward to running this one. Thank Good. you. Thanks a lot. All right. Take care. You too. I might have to grill this weekend. That's really got my juices flowing. I have some podcast news. I know I keep promising merchandise on a new website. The house project has slowed me down, and now my work with What's Brewing PA is starting up again. If you haven't watched What's Brewing, by the way, you should. It's a fun show about beer in Pennsylvania, which you're obviously interested in if you're listening to this. It's available on YouTube. Just search What's Brewing PA. I know some of you are watching it because people keep walking up to me at Wegmans and State College and saying, hey, you're that What's Brewing guy. Yes? Yes, I am. And thank you. It's a busy time. This week, I'm meeting with the sponsor I mentioned last episode to iron out the details on that. 
I'm also meeting with my agent and my editor next week about a possible new book project, a third whiskey book. Plus, a big hello to my fellow WSOV listeners. WSOV is the Sound of the Valleys, our local radio station here in Milheim, at 101.7 on your pretty local FM radio dial, and streaming worldwide at WSOV.org. They've decided to broadcast Seen Through a Glass on the station. This episode is the first one, and I'm proud and excited to be here. That's going to let a lot more people listen to the podcast. Exciting stuff. If you are listening on WSOV, there are over 30 more episodes of Seen Through a Glass to enjoy, including a Milheim episode and a Nittany Valley episode. They're available at seenthroughaglass.podbean.com. That's podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Or you can find us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Anyway, about the merchandise and website. I've got a purveyor for the merch picked out and a website address reserved. I'm meeting with my genius content creator daughter this weekend to design our first sticker and hash out what's going to be on the website. I'm looking forward to getting a lot done and hope to have something in your hands fairly soon. That's the show. Thanks to Dr. Jonathan Campbell for taking almost an hour to talk to me. I really appreciate it. And I hope to see him again some Friday morning soon at the Butcher Block, because I want some more of those excellent sausages, and I might have to get there early and grab some steaks. You'll find pictures for this episode on Instagram at Stag Podcast and on Facebook at Seen Through a Glass. If you'd like to toss a bit in my hat to keep the show going, please do consider the coffee button in my Instagram link tree and Twitter profile. Both are at Lou Bryson and at the Facebook page. And if you've already donated, thank you. In Pennsylvania, it is illegal to catch fish by any body part but the mouth. One assumes the law refers to the fish's mouth. Next episode? Well, I'd like to do that town profile, right? I mean, that's the plan. I guess we'll find out in two weeks. Until then, thanks for listening. This is Lou Bryson on Seen Through a Glass from the smack dab center of the Keystone State.